Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Christine De La Rose. She is CEO and co-founder of The People's Dispensary. We're going to talk to her about her history in cannabis, what she's done with The People's Dispensary, as well as some new exciting things she's got going on. I'm fascinated by this conversation. Christine has been involved in the cannabis space for a very long time and has really seen how it's developed. I think is really one of the people that is really kind of shaping where cannabis is going, how it can be effective, how it's being really integrated into really our culture and society. So I'm excited for the conversation. With that, Christine, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, so let's get background and then we can talk about some of the things you're doing. How did you get into cannabis? I mean, I, you, you've got a long history in it. Kind of paint the picture and explain you know, how, how you got involved and some of the, the things you've been doing over the years in the cannabis space. Well, that's a super easy question to answer. I became a sick person. <laughs> yeah. I was in tech for most of my career since graduating college, and I started to get sick in 2007, and nobody could figure out. I went to 22 doctors, and nobody could figure out what was going on with me, and it wasn't until 2010, um, after being sick for several years, um, that I had a pulmonary embolism on Thanksgiving Day, 
and I went into the hospital. And that's when they finally figured out that all the problems and all the illness I had been having was related to undiagnosed lupus. Yeah. And so that was kind of my start. And I can, there's a lot of stuff that happens between that where I'm really sick and I'm not working. I can't work. I can't sit yeah. up. I can't walk. Debilitating. Yeah, yeah. It was totally debilitating. And I was taking like 11 synthetic medications oh prescribed gosh. by doctors a day. I had to go to the okay. hospital once a month for an infusion. And none of this got me better. And so sort of in a desperate act... In 2015, I started looking for alternative medicine. And I have to be honest with you, my thought process as I was lying in this opioid-induced haze was that maybe green tea will work, maybe echinacea will work. Like that's (laughs) my level of thinking because I'm not a holistic person at that time. Um, And I kept coming up across these like really random and obscure because this is 2015, right? This is 2015 when there's not as much information about cannabis online that there is today. But I kept coming up against cannabis and THC and CBD and I didn't know what these meant. And I started to like do a lot of investigation and it was really hard because at that time what you could get was, you know, some YouTube videos with some really two really stone dudes trying to tell you how to extract stuff, you know. Um, so that was like my, and I was like, oh, this is so frustrating. But I ended yeah. up going to a local dispensary where I was living in Oakland mm-hmm. and I didn't know what I was buying and the bud tenders didn't know how to help me know what I was yeah. buying. And I was like so desperate. I was like, okay, I'm just going to buy whatever I can afford. So I ended up buying like a bunch of different stuff. Like I bought like. <laughs> To grab bag. Yeah, totally. It was product. like CBD, THC, indica, sativa, edibles, flour, vapes, like all the kinds of different things. And I probably spent close to $300 that day. And it was $300 I didn't have. I'd been working for five years. Yeah. Um, I'd blown through my savings, my 401k, like all of that to support, you know, me being sick. Yeah. And I just started to do it from there. I started to figure out what worked for me. I figured out quickly that for me personally, flour didn't really work for me yeah. because I was a previous tobacco smoker. So when I smoked mm. weed, I wanted to follow up with a, with a cigarette and I couldn't do that. I found yeah. that vapes helped me much better. And then I found mm. that CBD was working and took me about, I would say three to four months before I figured out a regimen that worked for me, which was a THC CBD combination throughout the day. Mm. And then Once I got that down, I started to remove one of the 11 pills every week. So I'd stop taking one pill and see what my body did. And then I'd stop Uh the next week, I'd do another pill. So finally, about nine months in, I managed to have a CBD regimen and a THC regimen that I use to this day for my lupus and get off of all 11 pills, including the five opioids they had me on and the infusion. So I have been in remission since probably September of 2015 um, and have not used any medication for my lupus. So no Plaquenil, which was a really hot topic this year because it's hydrochloroquine, yeah. is Plaquenil, right? That's the generic version of it. And I used to do that. I used to take those every day for five years. So I've never gone back on that. They had me on, you know, Lyrica, Gabapentin. Like you, I could just name the 11 medications. I knew them so well. Yeah, and sure. that was my thing, right? So now I'm in remission. I feel super good. Um, I'm curious what your doctor said. I mean, I I mean, you hear you under the care of all these doctors, you start doing this sort of self-treatment, you start taking yourself on the medications. I mean, what was the reaction? Well, I saw my doctors at least once a year in December, all 11 of them. I had 11 doctors that managed my lupus. And the very first time in December, 2015, I saw my primary care physician and he was like, you look great. Cause I wasn't walking with a cane. I didn't look sullen. He's like, what are you doing? You look fabulous. And I'm like, I'm not taking any of the medication you prescribed me. That's what I'm doing. And he, 
he was really down. He was like, this is so good. I can't believe it. It's this cannabis. And we talked about it and we ended up spending a long time. And he ended up send, sending a lot of his patients that were currently on opioids to me to try to find another regimen for them. Mm. And we did. My rheumatologist, which managed in my lupus, also asked me the same question. I told him the same answer. And he was like, I don't believe in that. And I don't know if to this day, if he still doesn't believe in it or he believes in it. I kept seeing him and he was totally fine with me using cannabis, but he was more of a skeptic. But okay. I think after the fourth year of seeing me where I didn't need any additional medication, I didn't need an MRI, I didn't need a CTA. Yeah. He was like, well, maybe there's something. There might be yeah. something. So yeah, so there I am in remission and I could go back to work. I was making very good money as a database architect mm-hmm. and could have pretty much picked my job. I've been in tech since 1996 and I was mad. Bruce, I was really mad because I had lost my five highest earning years being sick when I didn't have to be, right? I was sick because I didn't know any better. And so I didn't want to go back to that. I felt a really big sense of obligation to all of the other lupus patients that I had met. Mm -hmm. You know, in those five years, I belonged to all the lupus groups, both online and in person. And I saw so many people with the same problems. And so I thought, I can't go back to just being tech, knowing that there's a medicine out here that helps lupus and probably helps others, right? Other types of illnesses, chronic diseases, inflammation, all the things. And that's how I got into cannabis, because I was so mad that I lost five years of my life. When I say loss, I mean lying in bed, being too sick to stand. I mean, I'm talking loss, like not having a good time at my house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That I just couldn't go back to that knowing that there was a, a plant, a holistic plant that if we had not been in prohibition and they had been able to do regular research yeah. that I could have probably had those five years. Yeah. So what did you do? I mean, I, obviously, yeah, I get it. Like it would seem, it would seem odd to just kind of pick up your old life and kind of ignore everything that you've gone through and ignore all the communities you've, you know, developed and relationships and knowing that there was, you know, a potential application or potential option for some of these folks. So what do you do from that point? Like, how do you get involved? Well, at that point, I was living in Oakland. That's where I'm based. And Oakland had a really interesting city ordinance called a Z measure. And it was put in there in place basically to say that the police are not going to arrest people who have cannabis. Like they're like not going to do that. They're not going to waste energy, effort or money. But also you could create a collective under the ordinance. And in the collective, you could basically have a dispensary as long as it was unpublished. You didn't have a storefront. You didn't have, so it was a gray area. It wasn't, wasn't illegal in the city, maybe in the state, like there was a lot of questions around it. And I thought, you know, this should be legal. And so I'm going to create a business with my co-founders using using this ordinance. And so that's what we did. So we couldn't advertise. We couldn't have a storefront. We couldn't put anything. So we were basically a speakeasy. So we were definitely in the unregulated market, yeah. but in the still in that gray area, right? Because you, the Oakland police couldn't come and arrest us or didn't, didn't have that, that charge. So you weren't, you weren't necessarily legal, but you, you were somewhat protected from... Yeah. Prosecution. And so what we did is we started that. We started in a closet. If you go to our website and look at the About Us, you'll see the closet I'm standing in. That's how we started. We had a, a retail shop and we just put it in the closet and we grew our first three strains. Um, one of my mm-hmm. co-founders did. And that's what we had. And so people who knew came to us and said, you know, we would like to buy that. And we started to sell. And then immediately within the first two months, I had thought, to be honest with you, Bruce, that we would be servicing 
I don't know, 20 to 40 of our closest friends. Like that's how yeah. I felt. Yeah. And in the first two months, we had 500 people. Wow. And then I started talking to other growers and manufacturers. And, you know, that was the old days when you could like literally people would walk in with backpacks full of weed and you would buy them cash on delivery right there. They would just show you if you liked it, you bought it. It was like really the Wild West. And I miss it terribly, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and we then got the, there was a, a place right above us that went up, up some stairs. So we got that mm-hmm. as about 300 square feet and we created an actual dispensary. And we had like very limited compared to the big medical dispensaries, but we had 11 or 12 strains. We had some edibles, we had some vapes, mm-hmm. and these were vapes that were being sold in the regular medical dispensaries. So we had the same thing. And, oh, um, okay. and we just started doing that. And by the end of, 2017 so right before uh legalization hit on january 1st 2018 in california we -hmm. had 4500 customers wow and that was all word of mouth with no advertising that's with no marketing no advertising yeah and what i did in that time was to think about why we sat within five miles of four big dispensaries um, that Uh were licensed medical and i started thinking like why and i started to look at our demographic and i started to see who was coming to our store even though we Mm -hmm. had way limited supply than the larger stores and i realized it were people that were of color people in the lgbtq community veterans people that just didn't feel comfortable um, in the larger dispensaries right and then i started to realize oh there's a huge market Uh and that's when i decided you know, to take us into the regulated market. And we started to get ready for applications. And tell us about that process. How, I mean, what, it was, I, it was so I wild. I can imagine it was, there's a lot of change going on in that. It was, well, you know, the first ones were in Oakland and I wrote that application and what I didn't know. And now I do know. And now I, I talk about this a lot. It's just the chicanery that has, was going on. So we're over here, you know, very earnestly and humbly putting together our application, talking about how we're going to do social equity and, you know, talking about all the things that we believed around community and how to reinvest in community because we were already doing that as the BHC, which is what we were called at the time. And these other corporate guys were out here getting 40, 20 to 30 social equity applicants. And I didn't understand that I couldn't, I'm like, how are you going to incubate 20 to 30 social equity applicants? And what I didn't understand was that they weren't planning to do that. They were just getting the points that was associated with these social equity applicants. We had two social equity applicants that I felt we could afford to do. Uh Um, And that gave us like, I think it was like 10 extra points on your thing. So somebody who had 28 social equity applicants got 280 extra points. (laughs) <laughs> so they're basically gaming the system. They totally gamed the system. I didn't understand that. And I would never have done that because we belong in our community and I didn't want to promise something that we couldn't do. Yeah. They didn't care if they broke those promises. They just needed the license. Yeah. And so I wrote that sure. by myself as a general applicant because we didn't have any, we didn't have, we were not any of the co-founders, were, we were not social equity. So we did a general application. Mm-hmm. These guys spent thousands and thousands of dollars on consultants and application writers. And I wrote that application by myself. And we ended up being number six out of all of the general applicants, which are over 200, and they only took the top four. Oh, so that was really painful. But what I did is I pivoted really quickly and had access to an existing operating brick and mortar dispensary in Portland. And I mm-hmm. took our money and I bought that. Got it. Because we had been working, of course, in the unregulated market, which is very different. And I wanted to make sure that we could work in the regulated market yeah. and understand all that encompassed the two, the two ADE, the POS systems, the metric, oh, yeah. the whole thing. Because we weren't really, you know, if you were a collective, you didn't do that, right? Yeah. Um, and you didn't have to. So now we needed to do that. And so we bought the Portland store, which we still have, and that mm-hmm. became our training ground. 
for all of the other applications we were going to put in. So since then, we've put in applications in LA, which we still don't know the status of. We just put in applications in Chicago. But now we knew what we were doing. Like we were really clear um, how that was going to work. And so that's what we've done. And then we did get a delivery license in Oakland in preparation for releasing, like coming back into the Oakland and Bay Area market as a people's Mm -hmm. dispensary to be able to service those 4,500 people when we had to tell them we didn't get the license and we couldn't stay open. At that point, we would have been illegal. Right? They had a, I think a moratorium, like you had until January, I think it was January 19th, 2019. You could operate as a collective, you were grandfathered in, but after that moment, you had yeah. to stop or you were you were going to be put in jail, basically. Yeah, it, so it we operated ridiculous. through the year of 2018 as we were raising money and trying to do these applications. But as soon as we hit that deadline, and I can't January, remember the yeah. exact date, we stopped operating. Yeah, to shut down. Yeah. And so as you've developed the dispensaries and kind of looked at who you want to serve in the market, how have you defined your audience, your customers, the, you know, the people you want to be serving, and how has that impacted or fed into your strategy or the products you offer? for the way you've designed the space? I mean, how how has that impacted how you kind of play things out? I think what we did, and we still continue to do this to this day, is that we were never fooled into believing that this was a new market or that Mm -hmm. this was an emerging market. We understood clearly because we came from that market that it was an existing market. And that any type of marketing, like we were seeing all of the big guys come out and, you know, the new normal, this is a new industry, this is an emerging industry. All of us are over here going like, what are you talking about? Like this is an (laughs) actual- been around for a while. Yeah. And so that was what was so shocking to me was that none of these large companies with huge budgets for marketing and PR and all that stuff did never thought to reach back into the existing markets and bring Mm -hmm. them into the regulated market. we see the the problems with that in California now where seven out of eight people still buy on the unregulated market, right? Because you didn't yeah. do that work. We did. So we kept our ties into the unregulated market and we brought in existing customers that were already existing for us or were believed in our mission into the regulated market. And we had to do that really carefully because we come out of the unregulated market. So there's also, you know, we didn't want to be seen as we were trying to get one up on people. We wanted to have them included in us Mm -hmm. trying to move into the regulated market. And I think that's what's saved us. I think that's why we haven't laid anybody off. I think that's why we haven't furloughed anybody, you know, like, these are reasons why we are still here, even though we're tiny compared to these big guys, because yeah. we actually honored the existing market. And I think the existing market, which is the largest market in any state, guarantee, yeah, exactly. um, if you yeah. honor them, they will move with you. They want to have access to tested yeah. product. They want to have access to good quality. It's not that they don't. It's just that they don't trust the market as it sits today. And I guess why not and what do you do that helps bring them forward? I mean, is there something about how you communicate, the products, the experience? What is it that you do that allows you to actually maintain those connections and, and help people move from you know that unregulated to the regulated side? I think that we're very clear in our mission. I think that yeah. we're clear that yes, we just like any other business, we want to make profits for ourselves and for our investors. But that even before those, we want to make sure that we are good citizens in our communities. Because of our community specifically, since we're a minority-owned company, mm-hmm. um, 100% LGBTQ-owned, is that what we understand is that we wouldn't be here without that community. Like we wouldn't have had 4,500 people as our consumers had they not believed in our mission, which was community first 
profits second. And the reason I say that is because if you do it that way, if you say communities first, profits second, you're automatically going to have great profit. And I've said this before. I said it at the, I think the first time I said it was at the Trailblazers inaugural event Mm -hmm. at uh, Summit. I said to them, I said, there's going to be billions and billions and billions of dollars to be made from this industry. If you just took a little bit of it, 10% of it, let's say, make a little bit less money so that you can help these communities that are actually making you those billions, your loyalty will be beyond measure. It will be worth so much more and you'll actually be doing the right thing, right? You don't always always have to be extractive. (laughs) Like we don't always have to be extractive as a country, as an industry, we can be integrative. We can be partnered and it's harder. Like I agree. Like if you just ignore communities and be like, I don't care what you went through. I don't care that you 80% of y'all were locked up. Who cares? You can be that person, but it doesn't suit you well. And it actually does exactly what it's doing today. Like I think of all of the industries I've watched over my course of my life and that I've read about, we are seeing how you absolutely can't do that in this day and age because otherwise you wouldn't have seven out of eight people still buying in the unregulated market. Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, as you've kind of got more involved in the industry overall and been a, a voice in, you know, helping really direct the industry in certain ways. I mean, where, where do you think the industry is doing things well and doing things right and doing things kind of justly and from an equitable point of view? And where do you think it's not? And where do we need change? I mean, give us your kind of assessment on where we stand and what might we need to focus on. I would say that since the beginning of the recreational cannabis industry, they've done pretty poorly in terms of inclusion, diversity, mm-hmm. and equity. I think they've done terrible. I think that this year, with everything that's happened this year, George Floyd, the pandemic, we're starting to see them kind of be like, oh, wait, we might be a racist industry. Wait a minute. Hold on. What's going on? Now, mind you, you can go back to 2016 and hear me talking about this, but they're just starting to get the light on, which I'm grateful for. I'm not mad about, really. Like, I'm like, okay, at least you're seeing it. So in some ways, I see them doing really well. I think like the Last Prisoner Project, that's a really great project, you know, but we're now in 2020. And in 2016, three states were already legal, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon. And they never thought about social equity. And in fact, they never thought about the currently incarcerated folks. It's just now. So imagine if you're an incarcerated person and you see all of these dudes making millions of dollars in the regulated cannabis market and you're still behind bars. What the heck? So I think that we see, now we're seeing movement, I would say from third, fourth quarter of 2019 through this year, I'm starting to see really positive movement of trying to understand like, how do we diversify? How do we bring in these existing market consumers? How do we make our boards diverse? How do we make our companies diverse? How do we think about cannabis beyond an industry, but actually from a lens that it was prohibited and lots of people gave their lives to do this? And how do we do that in a mindful way? And so that's the good thing I think that's happening right now is that we're starting to see this eye-opening, not just from the small operators like myself, but from these large operators really trying to figure out how they get that done. How can they do that? How can they retroactively be on the right side of history. And so that's the yeah. best thing about it. The worst yeah. thing about it right now is, of course, for me, the way social equity is being treated amongst the different states. I think social equity has been a failure, an abject failure. And so I'm no. hoping that we'll start to see other models come to light in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, do you think it's going to be driven by sort of the, the, the state or the government kind of regulatory side of things? Or do you think this is the industry is going to come together and start doing this more on the, um, you know, on the corporate side, on the private side? I mean, or, or both. How do you see this playing out? I think it's a partnership, but I think that it needs to be run by the industry. And I'm going to tell you why, because you get regulatory 
involvement without any knowledge of the history or what currently works. And so you get these regulations like we did in California that are absolutely untenable. They're absolutely (laughs) untenable. And so because these guys are like, wow, it's going to be all this money. And it's like, yeah, but it's a lot of money to run the business. And with the certain restrictions we have around being a Schedule 1 drug, you should have taken that to consideration so that there's not 35% taxes because you're driving people back into the unregulated market you're the reason like they come out they're like we did this huge bust the only reason there was a bust was because you drove people to the market so there's a demand if you had thought about that beforehand then you wouldn't be wasting all of this money to recriminalize people on something that's now regulated so that's why i don't think it should be at all the government but the government should definitely partner with industry and i said this last week to a different group of people i said we pay a lot of taxes. We pay a lot of taxes. Why do we keep acting as if we don't have a say, as if we have no choice but to do what the regulators want when we could be in partnership and say, hey, you're about to go into a depression. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And what we have learned in this pandemic is that we are not only an essential business, but we are actually a commodity that has to happen, that has to be available Mm -hmm. to people. So we have, you're starting to see, and I read about this every day, cities, states who never considered recreational marijuana, not even medical (laughs) marijuana. They're like, how can we pass these laws now? Can we get something on the books? And I'm saying that's a power. That's a piece of power that we have that we should utilize to get better regulations for our industry that allows us to do not only more for ourselves, but for our communities and to lower the cost of this product so that people who are still buying in the unregulated market go like, oh, that's about equal, you know, and they have testing and they have better brownies because it doesn't taste like pot. There's not a huge effort. Like there's so many reasons why. And so I really think the industry should lead it. I think we need to step up and stop asking permission to do the thing that is right. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that the um, the folks that are running the businesses, that are the entrepreneurs, that are the you know the CEOs in the space, are the people that are really going to have the opportunity to drive this. Because, I mean, they have the influence, right? I mean, yeah. they're making the market, right? So if we can get these people on board and get them talking in the right ways, get them focused on the right kind of um, the right priorities to really help the industry in all ways kind of grow and really help culture and society. I think it's, that's going to be the biggest driving force because the government's going to, is going to be there to serve them. I mean, ultimately, the government's there to serve society, right? So, you know, if we can, if we can figure out how to get that conversation going and get the right priorities set, then I think that's it's probably how it's going to play out. So tell us more. I know you're doing some other new business ventures here. Tell us a little bit about some of the new activity you've got going on. Well, you know, I'm a huge CBD advocate. I love CBD. Uh-huh. I use it in my everyday regimen. I have several ways in which I utilize it. And I was really thinking about like, what are the barriers? And this actually happened in January, February, I started to think about what's happening in the world. You know, how do I get CBD to more people? Because I'm constantly getting asked, like, can you send me CBD? And I can, of course, send cannabis drive CBD. Yeah across state lines. And so we partnered with uh, LionX, which is Nico Marley's brand for the People's Dispensary, so that we had CBD products that we could ship across the U.S. But then I started getting questions from investors that are friends of mine from Asia, China, Singapore. And they were like, is there anything you can send me? And I was like, I don't know. But when I bought the People's Dispensary, I bought it from a gentleman named George Walters. And he was the original owner. And he had started a company doing citrus CBD, a citrus-based CBD. And 
And I had started taking it as an alternative to my CBD for two reasons. One, because the efficacy was really good. It's like a really clean product. You feel it immediately. It's really great. But also because it was repeatable. Like sometimes I would buy my CBD gel caps from one company and Mm, then I would get by 30 days later, buy another supply and I could tell that it wasn't as strong or maybe it was stronger. It was Uh slightly different. And if you're somebody who takes this every day, you know your body really well. And so I started talking to him and I said, I really think that we should do something with this citrus CBD that has these repeatable outcomes. And so we formed a company called CBX Shield. And I didn't want to do just CBD because at this point, we're having the thoughts and conversations in February. And then in March, we get locked down. And we're like, wow, this is a real thing that's happening, right? And so I didn't want to just do CBD product. I wanted to see like, what other things could we put with CBD that would be helpful for immune systems, for lung health, for this. And then I, I moved to, you know, what's a big conversation on the West Coast now is mushrooms, right? What type mm-hmm. of mushrooms? And so I started to look at all the different mushrooms that I thought I would like to pair. And so we did a formulation of CBD, citrus CBD and uh, reishi mushroom that ended up being fire. Like it's really good. And it was great yeah. because it made you feel good, but it was also doing protective. Like reishi takes a long time, like 30 days for it to really have efficacy in your body. It's a daily thing. Whereas okay. CBD is a immediate. So you had both the immediate and the long term. And so we created the company CBX Shield and we're coming out with our first products probably mid-August. They're going to the manufacturer mid-July with the formulation. Uh And we have tinctures and we have capsules. We have transdermal patches, which I've been testing out here with my boxer friends who do boxing and they love them. And the thing about this is that it's because it's citrus CBD, there's no fear if you're a medical person and you take this and whether it's going to come up on your, you know, jobs in the US where you cannot take hemp or cannabis for fear of a drug test, this kind of, this alleviates that. And it allows you to actually utilize CBD, especially for me, I was thinking about our frontline responders who are under so much stress right now that this would be helpful. And then the other cool thing is, is that we can ship it globally. So you know, exactly, just now you're you're no longer hemmed by international trade, you know, restrictions on cannabis products. Nope, and that's great. Wow. So we've already done. We've gotten the home office letter from the UK. We're working on um, for I think it is Japan. We're working to be seen as a non-Schedule 1 drug. So we already mm-hmm. ship some products, but in order to ship large amounts of products, you have to get a certain letter. So we're working on that letter. Got and it. so we just find it. And we have, at this point, we have requests from, we just got a request this morning from South Africa. We also have, we have, you know, we're in talks with China and these are large things because they don't have access to CBD, but they are also going through the pandemic like the rest of us. Huh. Yeah, fascinating how a set of circumstances and, and situations, uh, you know, creating this opportunity. But yeah, I think this is one of the interesting areas and, and why I find you know cannabis so fascinating is that it, there is so many facets and as you kind of think about the industries and, and think about the different directions you can go, there's so many possibilities. You really, know, you there are. I think that's why it's an exciting industry because the possibilities at this point are endless. Yeah. This has been a pleasure, Christine. I, I love what you're doing. I love your story. Some really exciting stuff. If people want to find out more about you, about any of the products and, and things that you're working on, what's the best way to get that information? They can either go to the website, mytpd.com, or they can find me on LinkedIn, Christine De La Rosa. Great. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate the opportunity. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. 
And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.